0: If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at infodenverchurch.org. At to get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching.
1: Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. If you don't, there's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you in the page number on the screen. Oh, there's no page number. There's no screens. There's one. We're batting 500, but I'll get you into the Hall of Fame. Uh, good to see all of you. Just before we jump into the teaching, uh, I just want to share with some of you who may not know that in April of 2024, uh, we are taking another pilgrimage to Israel and Palestine. And uh, some of you have been on that trip with us, uh, but we, uh, we do this about every other year. And we do it as a way of learning with our feet, is what we call it. That's so often. Uh, the parts there's parts of our faith that just seem distant and unconnected and not tangible and more of an idea, but we invite all of us to go in and really uh, root ourselves on the ground in the dirt in both the ancient realities and the current realities in that part of the world. So if you have any questions about that or are interested, please email info at denverchurch.org or you can just come and speak with me after the time that we have together this morning. Uh, And I'd love to give you any information I have. But for right now, Luke chapter 10, we are back in the gospel of Luke after taking a summer break. I'll begin reading in verse 38. It says this, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, He paints a scene with his words. And one one of the things we know is that in the ancient uh, first century period that this story takes place in, the houses were quite small, and typically, the place where preparations would have been made, as Luke talks about, which would have been the food and everything else that we would call a kitchen, was separate from it. And and so the scene is, is that you have people crowded into this small room. Likely, it's a room that was not well lit. They didn't have big windows back then. Often the windows were actually quite high up, they were really small to keep both thieves and the heat out, which means that they're all kind of packed into this dimly lit room and Mary, the younger sister of Martha, is sitting at Jesus' feet. Now this is a Jewish idiom for the place of a disciple, meaning that Mary was Jesus' disciple. It was not common for rabbis in the first century to have female disciples, but Jesus often broke with tradition and was way ahead of his time in his understanding of the importance of women, not just back then, but even for some today. And then the scene is that you have Martha kind of away from this room, who's running rampant, distracted by all the preparations for everything that she has to get done. And it's easy to come to this story and you see Martha seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words, and you're like, man, she's pretty great. And then you look at Martha, distracted, and you're like, I know people like Martha. You know the ones, like you go to someone's party and they're running around and you're trying to get their attention, but all they're doing is obsessing over the napkins because they're folded incorrectly? That kind of person. The kind of person who, anytime you speak with them, you have this sense of, they're just waiting for this conversation to be done because there's clearly someone over there they're more interested in talking to. Do you know the kind of people I'm talking about? I would ask if you are the kind of person I'm talking about, but typically people wired like this fail to see it in themselves. Although if people like that really bother you, chances are you're that kind of person. And what do we say to people like that? Hey, calm down. Because anytime someone's worked up and you tell them to calm down, it works really well. (laughs) Or you're like, man, she is so type A. Or maybe in this context, it was like, hey, Martha, do you know who that is? It's kind of a big deal. You should probably come over here. And this is often how the story is approached. You have Mary, the good, faithful, obedient disciple, and you have Martha. And you're just like, oh. What are we gonna do with Martha? By the way, my contemplative friends love this story because they're like, see, someone's sitting still before Jesus, listening. And I'm like, yeah, but Jesus does talk a lot about actually doing something too. You see, maybe if we dig just a little bit below the surface of this story, it might actually come not only more to life for us, but suggest something beyond just this binary between what's good and what's not good. Several years ago, I was in Israel and Palestine, and we were way far south in the Judean desert. There's this vast expanse of land between the southern part of Israel where all the valleys and mountains cease and Egypt, and it's basically rocks. It looks like Mars. And we were staying at a little hotel in a town in the south, and we drove on a bus for a couple of hours, and then we got out of the bus, and there was nothing For miles. Even as we rode in the bus, we looked out, and just for mile after mile after mile, there was no buildings, there was no settlement, there was no town, there was nothing. We get out of the bus at like 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. It's already in the high 80s. It was really dusty, really rocky. There was a wadi, which is basically a little valley where rivers come through when there's flash flooding, and there was a car turned over in the wadi, and I asked the guide, how did that car get there? He's like, oh, there was a flash flood. It swept it away and threw it down in there. The people in it probably died. Let's go. And there was this sense of like, I'm not sure we're going to make it. And so we're walking, and about a mile or two into our hike through the desert, we start seeing scenes like this. This is a shepherd boy. And we saw they would have basically flocks of goats, sometimes 20, 30, sometimes up to 70 goats. And we saw young girls and boys, probably anywhere from age 10 to maybe age 13 or 14, and they're walking. And I started to wonder, wait, we drove forever to get here. Where are they coming from? And so I finally asked the guide, where are these people coming from? And he said, oh, those are Bedouins. We're actually going to a Bedouin camp. And I thought, I thought Bedouins were characters in Star Wars. This is amazing. And so we keep walking, and after about two hours, we come up over this little ridge, and there is this massive camp, and there's these huge tents. And there's some goats around the camps, and some people see us, and they start walking to us. And they're like almost singing, welcoming welcoming us to the camp. And they come and they give our guide a hug and they're shaking our hands and they're obviously very excited we're there and they walk us all to this tent and the sides of the tent were rolled up and we're sitting on these little cushions and there's tables in front of us, there's these beautiful carpets everywhere covering up the rocks and the dirt that the tents are on and they're having conversations with us and they're pouring us tea and they're giving us bread any time that we need it. One of the things that I figured out is I kept finishing my cup of tea, and as soon as I did, someone from behind me would come and fill up my teacup, and eventually, I'm like, I'm never going to sleep again, and I'm not sure where the restrooms are, and a friend next to me said, if you leave a little bit of tea in your cup, they'll stop refilling it. I was like, oh, perfect. And so we're having this conversation with these people, they're wearing kafiyas. they're wearing traditional dress, we're in the middle of this desert in these tents, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I've gone back in time. There was some wormhole or something that we went through to get here, and I'm lost in this moment of this ancient meets modern place, experiencing this radical hospitality, and all of a sudden I hear this. And I had this moment where I thought, one of us stupid Americans forgot to silence our cell phones. Except for the fact one of the Bedouins reaches into his robe, pulls out the phone, and in English says, Hey, yeah, no, I got some people here. I'll call you back. And puts it away. (laughs) They talk about killing a moment. So as we're walking away, I'm asking the guy at all sorts of questions about this group of people, how they got to meet him, and eventually he says, yeah, for years we would bring groups and they would actually kill a goat for us, and we would be there for like four hours. And he said, it took me years to convince him, you don't have to kill a goat for us. And he said, but this, he said, such is the sense of their hospitality. Such is the sense of their Hospitality. You see, now in our culture, if you go to someone's house one evening and they just say to you at the end of the meal, don't worry about the dishes, we're like, man, they have the gift of hospitality, as though it's a gift. But in this part of the world, even today, it's not a gift. It is what is expected, and it's what they believe is right. And it's been that way for thousands of years. Now, I point out this kind of hospitality because this is actually what we see with Martha. Martha epitomizes hospitality. And I would contend she was someone who probably was awaiting the arrival of Jesus to her home. Now, here's where I say that. If you've been around DCC, you know that every week that I teach, I get up and say, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. But when Luke wrote his gospel, There were no chapters and there were no verses. It was a long-form story. So the readers and the hearers didn't get disrupted by chapter and verse. And I say that because oftentimes we can take one chunk of the text and we can forget about what comes before it and what comes after it. But in this case, we should pay attention to what comes before it. Because at the beginning of what we call Luke chapter 10, Jesus calls 72 of his followers together and he says, I'm going to send you two by two into the towns that I'm about to go. And then he gives them this instruction. He says, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you. Do not move around from house to house. Then we read that Jesus has a conversation with someone who's an expert in the law. And then it says, as they were on their way, Jesus and his disciples came to the house of Martha. Why? Why? Well, because this is one of the towns that he was about to go to. Why that house? Well, because some disciples of Jesus had walked in previously and said peace to this house and they discovered Martha, someone who promotes shalom, someone who promotes peace, someone who is about the binding together of all things, of making the crooked places straight and of making the low places high. This is who they encounter. And she feeds them. And she gives them something to drink. And she gives them a place to lay their head. And she's anticipating the arrival of their rabbi, a person named Jesus, someone that many believe she probably already knew because of other stories in the Gospels. And so the day comes, and Jesus and his entourage, or disciples, show up, and she is occupied with making sure that he is welcomed the way he deserves. She, someone who promotes peace, is welcoming all of them. Now, is it possible that just that little detail begins to change the way you view the story? It's not all cut and dried. Martha is doing the work. What is her sister doing? I like what you're saying, Jesus. Have you ever been in a place where you're the only one doing all the work? Let me rephrase that. How many of you had to work in groups in high school? <laughs> How many of you were the ones doing all the work? Oh, a lot of honest people. Some of you like, I just saw shame. You're like, not me. <laughs> uh, when I was in high school, one of the, my, my wife and I actually met in high school. And one of the things that she's told me over the years is she said, one of the reasons I liked you was because you were really nice. Some of you are like, nice guys finish last, dude. I beg to differ. Because when my wife met me, she was dating a guy named Matt Haney. And guess what? She's not dating him anymore. (laughs) So she said I was nice. And it's true, me and my friends had this rule where we said, nobody in our cafeteria eats alone. That's not okay. And so our table, we just invited everyone to eat at our table all of the time, and we genuinely became friends with nearly everyone in our class. It wasn't a large high school, but that's just kind of the way we thought we should be. But it wasn't all altruistic for me, because there was another guy also named Matt, Matt Heising, and he was so smart. I mean, like, awkward smart, smart. And... The first day of my junior year when I walked into chemistry class, there was a seat next to Matt, and I knew that in chemistry class, we had chemistry partners, and so I walked over and sat next to Matt and gave him the old fist bump. I was like, how was the summer? He's like, good, and I'm like, man, I hear there's partners in here. You want to be? We should be partners. I almost made it sound like his idea, and he was like, okay. (laughs) I got an A in chemistry. And I did none of the work. Like, I was that guy. And there were moments where we were doing, like, some kind of experiment or mixing together some chemicals or, I don't know, periodic table of something, I guess, exists. And Matt would be explaining it to me, and I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, 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 and doing nothing. And I could see the frustration in him grow. Now, I point this out. Because oftentimes when we come to the Bible, we read it like it's just a bunch of object lessons. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, there's this story. Here's the lesson from it. And when we do that, we have a tendency to almost like stand over the characters that we find in the story. And so we can shake our head at Martha and we can go over and give Mary the old well done and walk away from it fundamentally unchanged because if it's only an object lesson, we have a more difficult time finding ourselves in the story. It's like we look at Jesus, who's like this holy robot, love one another, like, right? And then people just are like these emotionless human beings. No, Mary Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. She is doing nothing, at least not observable. Martha is working, and she's not just working. You see, the translation we just read says she's distracted by the many preparations, but the word for preparations there is actually the word for serving. When Jesus says, I did not come into this world to be served, but to serve, it's the same word about Mary. She's there, she is serving. The other way that word is translated is this one, ministry. Martha is doing the work of ministry. She's involved in the work of ministry. We might say, Martha is a minister. And the way that she looks at Mary is, and there you are, a consumer. Now I imagine as this scene plays out, Martha starts doing some of the work and every once in a while she's looking inside and she just sees Mary over there sitting down. She tells herself, well, we, we, we've known each other for a long time. She'll be in here in no time. Starts like kneading some of the dough, looks over. Mary's still just sitting there with that smile on her face. I imagine she started like banging some of the pots and pans just a little bit louder to kind of maybe get her attention like, hey, Anytime. I imagine at one point she like walked in and was like, hey, uh, mayor? Mary's like, yeah. Um, what do you think happened to the measuring cups? They're in the drawer to the left of the oven. (laughs) No, I've checked every drawer and you were the last one that had them, so why don't you come into the kitchen and help me? I'm gonna be with Jesus. And you're like, You can just feel it building, can't you? Eventually, Martha has enough. She walks into the room and she interrupts the whole scene and says, Hey, Jesus, don't you care that my sister's not helping me? I love that question. Jesus, do you care? Jesus, do you see the ministry I'm involved in for you? Jesus, do you see all the work I'm doing? Jesus, do you care? Now, there are some scholars and commentators that actually, like, question Martha. I don't know that you can speak to Jesus like that. like, oh, if Jesus is someone who will be upset by such an honest question, I'm not sure maybe he's everything he's cracked up to be. I actually love the fact that she asked such an honest question. Jesus, don't you care? And I don't think it was like this very prim and proper. I don't think she took a few deep breaths before she went into the presence of the Lord. This is someone she knows. She walks in and says, don't you care? Do you see what I'm doing? This is not the only time, by the way, Martha is really honest with Jesus. There's another story in the Gospel of John where it says that Martha and Mary, friends of Jesus, who lived in a village called Bethany, had a brother named Lazarus, also a friend of Jesus, who was sick. And so Martha and Mary send a dispatch to Jesus to say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Come quickly. And Jesus' disciples are like, all right, when do we leave? He's like, oh, we're not going anywhere. And they're like, um... Sounds pretty serious. He's like, yeah, it does. We're going we're gonna to mosey on over somewhere else. And then eventually he's like, oh, let's go to Bethany days later. And he's like, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, well, are you going to wake him up? And he's like, nope, I don't mean sleep. That was a metaphor for dead. It actually does say that, by the way. I'm not just trying to like color commentary of the Bible. How would you feel if there was someone that you knew could help you in a dire situation and you sent word to them. You got a text message to them and they looked at it and they had the read receipts on. Always a bad idea by the way. <laughs> it doesn't allow you to like have like tell them you were ignoring them. They read it right away and then the bubbles come up and then they disappear and you hear nothing from them. Days later they show up and they're like, "Hey, what's up? Got your text." By the way, some of you who are like younger and text messages need to be instant. Your head is exploding right now at the thought. Exactly, this is how Martha feels. She sees Jesus come up. Her brother's been dead for four days and this is what she says to him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't know how much time you've spent around the grieving I don't know how many funerals you've been a part of or that you've been to or that you've been close to a family who's lost a loved one. I don't know if you've lost a loved one, how you felt, but here's what I know as someone who has the sacred privilege of walking with people through the loss and the death of a loved one. I know that the emotions that rise to the surface and spill out are about as raw and painful as you can imagine. And I don't think that Martha walked over and was like, hey, Jesus, man, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I think she was probably pretty angry. I think there might have been a finger in the face of Jesus. Why would you wait? You, I've heard you say you loved him. Why did you not come? We're all here. We've buried and we rolled this. Where were you? Don't you care? Do you see us? I, I wondered, where does someone like Martha get that kind of chutzpah? Where did she learn to ask such brutally honest questions of Jesus, who she called Lord. Well, as our friend Jason reminded us last week, the Jewish people have a prayer book that we call the Psalms. And the Psalms are filled with people asking very honest questions of God. Psalm chapter 10 says this, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? Forever? Are you really going to hide your face from me? Psalm 88, my God, my or Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. Psalm 88, I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. So why are you rejecting me and hiding your face from me? Has there ever been a moment where you think, God, do you care? God, do you see me? I'm not only doing what's expected, I'm doing the work of ministry. I'm doing what is right. Don't you care? Could you at least respond? Could you tell my sister to help me? Could you in some God way, like just... Give me a pat on the back and tell me I'm doing all right. Do you care? Do you see me? This is the question that Martha asks Jesus. And Martha's question tells us a lot about her ability to be honest, and I would contend Jesus' response tells us a lot about him too. Jesus starts and says, Martha. Martha which I need to tell you that when I was like preparing the teaching, I kept going, Martha, Martha, Martha. Why does that sound so familiar? Well, my mom's name is Martha Mary Walsh. She's an Irish Catholic. I know with a name like that, it's hard to believe. And I remembered, and I actually texted my parents to verify this. When they, were, when they were dating, my dad, new to this country from Cuba, decided to write my mom a poem. And each line started with, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha, whose eyes are like the sea. Martha, Martha, you'll always be beautiful to me. You know, like, my mom said, yeah, it was lovely, but not really my style. That was her response. Then she said, but I still have the poem more than 50 years later. And even though my dad didn't text it, I could just see him going like, You know what I mean? All 78 years of them. Martha, Martha. That has nothing to do with the teaching, by the way. I was just in my office laughing and was like, I think I should tell everyone about this. (laughs) Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Which is a way of like, hey, Martha, my friend. Hey, Martha, come on, let's, let's chat. And what does he say? He doesn't say, why are you doing all of this? Don't you know I just fed like 5,000 people with a little. (whistles) Relax! Come over here! Confess your sins! Pray the prayer! Come on! No, Martha, Martha. You're worried. You're anxious. You're bothered. And how does Jesus know that? Because he does see her, because he does care. Martha, you're worried, you're anxious, you're bothered. Um, Mary, she's chosen what's good because in her seeing me, she knows I care. You see, in some way, Jesus' invitation to Mary is just that. It's an invitation. It's not a rebuke. He never says you shouldn't be doing this. In some ways, he's almost saying, hey, why don't you come down or come over and sit down for a while? In some ways, his question back to Martha is, yes, I see you. Do you see me? Because if you did, you would know how I feel about you. If you did, you would know that I see that you're anxious and I see that you're worried. Just come take the weight off for a second and just look at me and you'll know everything you need to know about the way you're feeling. I I love this interplay of this invitation not to stop doing what's good and needed, but almost to remember why we do these things that are good and needed. Mary's chosen what's good. She's chosen to sit with me She's chosen to set her gaze on me so that I can set my gaze on her so that she will know the answer to the questions that you're asking. Now, I don't know where you are this morning with that question. I do know that in my industry, I talk to a lot of pastors, literally from all over the country. And it's fascinating that Probably, I don't know if it's like this in every trade. I mean, I've only done this for like 20-some years. But when you talk to, like, pastors are talking, it's always like, hey, how are you doing? Notice, how are you doing? And it's, oh, man, things are great. We're in this sermon series through the book of Ephesians. It's going to change lives and bring people to Jesus. And you're like, I thought I asked about you. Hey, how's it going? Oh, man, our attendance is finally coming back after COVID. And, like, we're really having to have serious conversations about how many services we're going to have in the morning. Hey, how are you doing? Well, I've been walking with this family through this unspeak. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've learned in these conversations to listen to whatever their first or second response is, and then I say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I get all that." How are you? Not the church, not your sermons, not your ministry. You, how are you? And their response just confirms the research that's been done for years and years and years. They're lonely. They're isolated. They wonder if people care. They wonder if anyone, when they say, how are you doing, really actually want to know. I sat with a friend just a few weeks ago, and it was all this kind of like light conversation, and eventually it took a turn. And in the span of 15 minutes, he told me, I'm lonely four different times. And I hear beneath this, this ache of like, Jesus, do you care? Do you see me? And I don't know where you are as you walk in here this morning. I mean, maybe you're sitting here and your your question, like Martha, is, Jesus, I'm doing everything in my power to be a good parent I've poured my heart and soul into these kids, and right now it doesn't look like things are going to work out. Do you care? Jesus, I've done everything I can, and I've applied for every single job. I moved out here with the hope of experiencing a new world, but I get rejection at every turn. I'm beginning to think there's something wrong with me. Do you care? Jesus, I have cried out for and bled for justice and I look around at the world and it doesn't look like things are getting very better or very much better. Do you care? Jesus, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to reconcile this broken relationship. I've given and I've given and something is still broken. Maybe it's in me. I don't know, but I don't think I can last much longer. Do you care? Jesus, I've done everything by the book. I can recite the verses. I know the creeds. I attend church. I mean, and I still feel like this faith thing isn't adding up. Do you care? You see, I think if the, the, the sacred text teaches us anything, is that it's filled with human beings just like us who have been asking those questions for thousands of years. And part of me thinks that Jesus has his response to all of us. For us, like Martha, to come and to sit with him. There's a story at the end of each of the Gospels where Jesus actually is the host Of a meal where Jesus is the one who makes all of the preparations it's a simple meal it's just bread and wine and he says to his disciples after he had taken the bread and blessed it and broke it take and eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me and in the same way after supper it says he took the cup and he said take And drink this. This represents my blood poured out for you and my new and renewed promise to humanity. The Apostle Paul says, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus says, do this whenever you get together so that you might remember me. And I wonder, what is it that we're remembering exactly? Maybe this morning, we can come to this table. And we can come to this table holding the question of whatever's happening in your life, saying, Jesus, do you care? And we can hold that question as we come to receive the bread and the wine so that we can hear his resounding response to all of us. Yes, I care. Remember that I care. Take and eat and drink and hear my response To that aching question. Let's pray together. God, do you care? God, do you see us? God, do you see the good things that we're doing? The difficult things we've given our lives to? Do you care? We've all asked those questions at one point or another. Some of us are asking it right now in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And so, give us the courage to hold those questions within us. May we be a bit more like Martha, asking the honest questions only so we can hear your tender response and invitation to come and to sit and to eat and to drink and to remember yes you care we pray these things together in the strong name of jesus and all my siblings said amen and as we say each week this is not the table of denver community church this is the table of jesus who just says are you hungry are you thirsty that's all that's needed to come and to remember And so as you come, we have stations both on sides right here in the front of the platform. You can come down either the center aisle or the side aisles and return up the diagonal aisles. Come as you're ready.